0: You're listening to the crowdfunding nerds podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey
1: everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of crowdfunding nerds. I'm your fearless leader, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined as always by Sean and a, a special guest today. The special guest name, I speak all the time on the show, just for fun. Sometimes it is Jamie Stegmeier. Welcome to the
0: show, Jamie. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I think we've chatted over email before, but I don't think we've ever chatted face-to-face, and so this is a pleasure to be talking to you this way.
1: I know. I actually get to see your cat, one, one of your <laughs> yeah. cats. Uh,
0: who's that right there? That's Walter, and Walter. Uh, but he's, but he's taking a nap right now. Yeah,
1: That's <laughs> so awesome. I know it's not inside the Expeditions box because I can see the Expeditions
0: box next to you, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, pro- it's properly cat-sized for sure. It is, yeah. It's a big box. This is our new game that we announced yesterday called Expeditions, and Biddy and Walter do appear in the game. Do you ever have you put uh-huh. any Easter eggs like that in your game? Like your oh, all sorts of games. Game? You, yeah. yeah,
1: all sorts of them. And I, I've, um, I can't remember what game it is that I have of yours that
0: has Biddy and Walter in it, right? But uh, they're in a couple. They're in. They've appeared in between two cities. They're really small. They're in Scythe. They're in Tapestry mm-hmm. and a few others. Yeah, I was gonna say Scythe and Tapestry were the two yeah. that came to mind. And uh, well, cool. I'm I'm a huge
1: personal fan of of all of your games. I love them. Sean would be if he had uh, the friends to play them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so on this episode, we really, really wanted to dive deep into your community and how you as a person have injected value into the communities and really um, encouraged their growth. And the reason that I wanted to do that was, be, well, first of all, selfishly for myself as a, as a publisher, um, you know, uh, standing on the shoulders of, of giants, you're the giant. So uh, hopefully all those that are listening to us will gain great value from this in in the support of their own communities. So I guess the first question is such a broad question, but who are your target market who is your who is your customer avatar the uh, the idea is that you have one person that you're talking to and others may love the message too but do you do you have you thought about that have you thought about who your target
0: market is who your customer is and you know
1: in your yeah. various communities
0: that's a that's a great question yeah i I think uh the key when I think about that question is Kind of two perspectives. One is looking at the, the the kind of the big picture, which is that our target audience definitely isn't everyone. I learned this very early on uh, with viticulture in particular. That if I tried to market viticulture to everyone, then I would kind of dilute the message to probably the small number of people who were truly interested in viticulture or could potentially mm-hmm. be interested in viticulture. So that's kind of like bringing the big picture down, honing it a little bit. But then from the other side, building up, I've tried to look at it at, on a game to game level. I think each of our games. Is a little different from the others thematically mechanically in terms of how how um, how weighty it is and so i for each game i try to look at it from a, the target audience for that specific game which might differ mm-hmm. from game to game and i try to never assume that for example that everyone on our e newsletter list will be interested in all of our products or will even know about all of our products someone might, might have just signed up yesterday they might know very little about some of our games and so i try to talk about our games and games in general in an accessible, inclusive way so people can feel like that that it's okay to discover viticulture today, even though it came out 10 years ago, for example.
1: Yeah, I I love that. I think uh, you do a great job supporting your products. I remember, this was a long time ago, but thinking about the viticulture thing, you did some advertising or or engagement with people that are just into wine, but not necessarily board games. And right. you said that you, just from recollecting a blog post a long time ago, that that it was not that effective. Yeah. And and that's kind of what you're, is that kind of what you're talking about in regard to viticulture where you're, you're. I, I mean, you certainly made a good hypothesis, tested it out, found it it didn't work that well, but how would you say you primarily divide your, your targets? Is it based on like the theme of the game? Um, obviously board gamers that are interested in that theme, or do you
0: have other ways that you kind of decide what your target is going to be. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up that example. I, I thought a lot about that over the years because I realized that the, the at least starting out, the, the best intersection for viticulture definitely wasn't people who, who just like wine and didn't know anything about games, but it was rather the intersection between the two, people who already knew they liked games or were interested in modern board games, but also had at least a passing interest in wine. And so that intersection ended up being like the key to get viticulture off the ground and I think it's expanded a lot since then. But I've often visited that that idea of either intersections between two topics like a theme or and something that people are already interested in typically related to games. And every now and then we've stretched outside of it like with Red Rising we came up with a mm-hmm. game uh, based on uh, an intellectual property a book series a few years ago. And that was one where I really wanted to introduce the book series to gamers. And so that was a little easier to do. I already have fairly easy access into the board gaming world, people who pay attention to that world. But more difficult was uh, I I wanted also to introduce modern games to people who already knew the books of Red Rising and and might be curious about games. And I would kind of classify them, perhaps this isn't fair, but the readers of Red Rising, I would classify a little bit as like science fiction and fantasy nerds, like Uh already in a nerd category, which is adjacent, in my opinion, to the board game category. So I thought that might be an easier in than with uh, than with winemaking, although you can be a you can be a, a winemaking nerd as well. You can be a nerd about anything. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> I I love that. And uh, it, in fact, gosh, I remember growing up. I was born in eighty five, grew up in the nineties, and it was like to be a nerd was a very bad thing. And wow. I remember playing uh, Magic the Gathering in in high school, and I was on the wrestling team, and my wrestler buddies would come in specifically to make fun of me while playing Magic, and <laughs> yeah. I had more than a few fights in the wrestling room about that and eventually I I got big and strong enough that no one (laughs) wanted to mess with me anymore and I protected all the other nerds so for a fee (laughs) yeah (laughs) and then all of a sudden you know every like now it's like what fandom do you have like this is a very different age you know like the nerds even the jocks are nerds you know they just were too nervous to tell people right and I think that um, that's a really cool way to look at the the market as a whole. And, you know, certain properties have, uh, you know, Marvel is the biggest one I can think of mm-hmm. the mainstream thing that has made people into nerds and made people open-minded. And of course, certain companies are, you know, using that Marvel license as hard as they can like Simon and, you know, making yeah. great games. So I, I, I love that. There's, there's a company that I think of called genius games. Mm-hmm. They make games for scientists and I've, thought about this thing, you know, this, uh, uh, I, I can't, for whatever reason, I'm, I can't think of any of their game names off the top of my head, covalence or whatever. Covalence, there's cytosis, there's genotype is one of the more, more recent Yes. Ones. Yeah. So yeah. cytosis is, is the only one that I've played, but it is like very, like very correct as far as the science yeah. and, and whatnot. And what I always thought was fantastic is that board gamers that had a friend who's into science. Would buy that game so that they could play with the friend that's into science. The yeah. scientist will buy that game so that they can play with their friend who's a board gamer. And it offers a kind of a unique bridge in uh to to and I, I think board games, one of the biggest things they do. It's as about as intimate as having a meal with with family around a table or friends are around a table. You can really bridge the gap between two people who don't have as many commonalities through that manner. And I think viticulture is a great example of people that, uh, you know, enjoy wine and others that are board gamers that you can, you have something now to share with those, with those people. So let, let's jump into your, the, you have a lot of marketing avenues that you, you know, you've mentioned your email list. You've got groups for each one of your games. You have a YouTube channel that you, uh, yeah. You, you talk about your, what your favorite mechanics are. You even have the, this little, um, carved out niche with the Kickstarter crowd where you, you know, every once in a while share a Kickstarter lesson or um, re- recollect about your experience there. And, you know, I, I would love to learn about what you feel, what methods of communication you feel are valuable for growing your brand and what methods you feel are more, I uh, will say, uh, uh, cathartic for for yourself because that's the type of Thing that you love to do. I know you love to blog, for example, yeah. you've done that a very long time. What methods of communication do you feel are more most important for a company um, mm. and for yours
0: in particular? Well, I really, I really like the way you phrased that because again, we're talking about intersections here a little bit. Because uh, one side of it is for, for any form of communication that I that I choose to create, any content creation, um, the goal of it is to serve people and to add value to other people. Like that's always that's my goal, that's my mission with that content. But, and I'm really glad you said this other part of it, a lot of it is cathartic. A lot of it is me processing different ideas, me processing games that I've played and talking about the mechanisms of those games, me processing maybe something that we've tried at Still My our Games or that I see another company trying that that's really cool that I want to write about. That's me being passionate about this topic and wanting to process it out loud or in writing. And so combining those two things I've found is what's made them sustainable, I think. One, it's it's kept people's attention because I'm I'm actively trying to serve them. And I've been able to maintain it because... I enjoy I enjoy creating content for the things that I think a lot about. Now, your question also delved into like what is the, the like the right approach for another company to take. And I don't know if there is necessarily a, a right approach. And actually, I mentioned your podcast here too. This is exactly what you guys are doing. You you are talking about something that you're passionate about, but also that will hopefully add value to other people. And I think that's the key. Like for anyone, find the format that they're comfortable with, find the way that they want to add value to other people, and find the 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 topic. That excites them. And I think the forum is key. Like you've chosen podcasting here. I've chosen a combination of writing and video. Um, I wasn't originally very comfortable with the video format, but I found that I was. I became more comfortable with it. But some people might just not be comfortable with making a YouTube video. And so they can can go with a podcast or go with a blog. So I think some level of comfort there is required as well. Absolutely. I I think that um, part of it
1: is what I always try to teach others is um, whatever... You're currently, you know, whatever platforms you're currently using right now. Let's say you you yeah. use Facebook all the time, but you never use Twitter, or you use, you know, what, whatever it is, you're on Reddit all the time and very familiar with that platform. The your community and the places that you engage, the things that you actually do for your business, should they should not be entirely foreign concepts to you. So if you're if you use Facebook all the time, a Facebook group is an odd, you know, a great idea. But if you never use Facebook, to create a Facebook account for the sole purpose of a Facebook group might be the wrong move. Discord instead, or so, or something like that. Whatever you're comfortable with.
0: I like that a lot. That's a great because a, a, you're having to learn a whole new platform then, and b, it it kind it can come across a little bit as disingenuous if you just kind of. Mm-hmm. Sh- Show up somewhere and expect people to, to listen to you, opposed to a place that you've already been active, uh, already been an active participant in the community. I like that. Right, a lot.
1: Yeah. You do that on Reddit and you'll, you'll, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it'll be <Yeah>. very painful.
0: <laughs> so, Jamie, you must
2: be very good at keeping secrets because I know you mentioned briefly you've been developing Expeditions, this new title that you've really, you sort of announced this week but for that three years. And it's uh, now everyone yeah. knows about it. So, maybe talk a little bit about the full process behind your marketing strategy. Because I know
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, one thing that we teach and which we sort of help our clients is is to to almost tell people as soon as possible that your thing exists and then sort of build up momentum for like a Kickstarter launch. But maybe talk about your thought process behind why you decided to conceal this and then, you know, suddenly release it out out of the blue, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, In general, I, I absolutely agree with the approach that you've mentioned here. Talk about something early and often. I think that's particularly important for new newer creators who are, who are trying to build interest or find people who are also passionate about the thing that they're building. I think it also applies to experienced creators as well. The reason we have done that for the last few years, um, and including with Expeditions, is it's, it's basically the, the anticipation gap is the concept that I think about. When, when people start to get excited about something, how long you can actually maintain that excitement before they turn their attention to other things, because there's so many distractions in the board game world. And so the method that I've used over the last few years is that typically we announce a new thing that we've already worked on that we've already made. We announce that new thing. We talk about it in detail for a few weeks and then we put it up for pre-order, and then we ship it a few weeks later. So the gap between when someone hears about it and can start to get excited about it and when they can actually get it is about five to six weeks. I don't know if that's the right method, but it's been fairly successful for us for the last few years. Expeditions was a little bit different. I really threw this this up out of nowhere and we haven't even completed making it yet. It's entering production now, but it hasn't finished production. So it's a little bit different. What do you guys think about that idea of an anticipation gap and how long you can actually maintain that level of excitement before people get impatient or start to dismiss it as hype, that sort of thing.
2: Well, it sounds like you've taken a lot of concepts from the Kickstarter process, crowdfunding process, and have sort of made them your own, incorporated them into your own systems. We often see this as well where we have like clients who come to us and like oh now i'm planning on launching six months from now what should i do and it's like well it's a bit early to run paid ads because of that exact phenomena you've spoken of of people sort of turning off and then only kind of jumping in later on so we always recommend about two months out to start paid mm-hmm. advertising and get the ball rolling. but in terms of organic stuff obviously do it as, as soon as possible so that's sort of our recommendation i know one thing i, I want to get into a little bit was in terms of your your blog, I know you've, you've spoken about adding value and was were you quite intentional in it becoming what it is today? You know, we've been featured on it, it's, it's a resource that helps a lot of people. Or was it more so a happy accident that sort of happened on the back of you, I suppose, cathartically getting your thoughts out?
0: Yeah, so very, very early on, it was when, um, it was right around the time of the Viticulture Kickstarter, either right before or right afterwards, I was kind of, po- I was using the blog to share more information about viticulture, like I would post a few cards and I'll talk about those cards. And rather quickly, after just a few posts of doing that, I was like, "What am I? What am I really doing here? I feel like I'm trying to sell something here." And I, in general, I don't like to feel like I'm selling anything. Like, it, I, I, my goal here—I actually didn't know my goal at the time—but I something felt off about it. It felt a little bit too focused on. Felt, I don't know. I don't know quite how to describe it, but it. Felt like I was I was over emphasizing a product that didn't even exist yet and I, I just wanted a different approach and so I started just writing about things that I had learned from the VidCulture Kickstarter campaign things that I thought that went well things that didn't go well and as soon as I kind of fell into that and people started to respond to it that became the path uh, that that became the way that I, I wanted the I realized that I wanted the blog to be and so that was that was in 2012 2012 and it, I it was simply continuously maintained it since then with that with that approach
2: great yeah so i think that's key of, of not coming across too salesy so to speak and yeah. in terms of being genuine is is really key to this whole process of crowdfunding um and even just building a brand these days you know i think <laughs> i don't know if you've seen this video of this some guy who uh, sort of faked being an influencer by using ai and he, he created all these fake images and like there's so, there's so much uh, i suppose trickery out there i think people really appreciate uh-huh. the open and honest approach of, hey, this is what I'm going through, this is what I'm thinking, and then also yeah. involving their own communities in in that process. So what does the future look like? Where 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 your where's your headspace at? Where's your, your thoughts in terms of where this is all going? Are you pretty content just to maintain what, what you're doing or do you have plans to, you know, expand and grow or sort of what's the mentality?
0: Well, it's kind of an ongoing process, right? And how can we how can we continue to um engage our current audience and make them make them feel valued and, and make sure that they're having a good time when they're, when they're engaging in the various communities that we offer, but also to be inviting to other people. And I, our newest thing that we started doing, this is probably maybe already may sound integrated to you because I think you're ahead of the curve, but we started a Discord community a few months ago. That was something I kind of put off because I, I felt like I had reached a critical mass of communities to maintain. Because like I've mm. got the YouTube channel, I've got the blog, I have uh, Instagram, I, we have the Facebook groups and so I was a little hesitant to add discord as well but we ended up doing it and I'm really glad we did cuz discord is so easily broken down by by topic and there there people just seem to be having a lot of fun in, in our discord channel um or discord server so
2: in terms of all these communities w- what do you find removes sort of the the needle most is it your email list is it the blog is it the discord what what do you think really gets people um, i suppose that gets gets their attention and also gets people to support you in your latest projects and endeavors.
0: Yeah. Uh, I like the way you said it, the, the, how, how to get their attention. Um, and also I would add how to get them to actually to act because there are mm-hmm. times where I want our customers to act. I want to give them the, the opportunity to act. And still I come back to the e-newsletter. I still mm-hmm. think that is the most effective way um, as long as we don't send it too often. I think if we sent it every other day people would quickly tune it out, but we send it once a month and I think that is still the best way because Right now with with Facebook and Instagram, uh, Discord isn't the case with this, but Facebook and Instagram in particular, and even YouTube, it's kind of a passing thing. I could post a giant video on YouTube and it'll be out of people's feeds by the end of the day. They won't even see it, even if they're check, actively checking their YouTube feed. So the newsletter is the one thing that I know for sure is going to show up in someone's in- inbox and they're going to see. But that's just me. I'm curious what you think about that. Is that where do you guys stand on on uh, when you need someone's attention and you need them to act? What What's the, your number one way?
2: Yeah, we, well, we recommend emails. And another reason yeah. is you can segment your audiences. I don't know if this is something that you yeah. do, but you can sort of send more frequent communications to people who are more interested in, I suppose, getting frequent updates and then less to people who... Yeah. So that that's, I think, a key benefit as well. Um, I, I suppose the danger is most people own Gmail accounts or Yahoo accounts, sort of bigger kind of conglomerate email providers, and the danger is that you then get stuck in their you know, filters as their emails have almost become like a social media site in and of itself, where you're sort of yeah. fighting these companies to try to get in. Um, one thing I'm really interested in, something we have talked about on the podcast is RSS technology, which is, I suppose, a bit older, it's connected to your blog, but your blog has an RSS feed, I imagine. Do you know if, do you get any, is there any sort of feedback from your community that that's something that people actively go to? It's almost like, it's like a reverse email, right? Where, right. you know, you they subscribe to you and, you know, it's more, more so the other way around instead of them giving your email, you give them your email, so to speak. <laughs>
0: right, right. I, mean, I, I love RSS. I use Feedly for, to read blogs and, and RSS feeds personally. I don't know. I actually don't know how many other people do that. I could probably find it, that data on Feedly. I, I do know that on our blog, there is a way to subscribe to new posts by by email um, through WordPress. Um, so it's different than our e-newsletters just whenever I post a new post on on, um, on our blog. Some people get an automatic email um, notification. I think actually most, most people get that, which is great. But the one downside is that once it means that when I hit publish for any blog post, a bunch of people are getting that original version of the post. Yeah. And even though later on, I often go back and find typos or, or, or correct little things and they don't get that notification. They only get the very first version that goes to, goes to print in their, in their inbox.
2: Yes, yeah, as, and as, again, as you said, the disadvantage is not knowing how many people is sort of been syndicated towards. But another advantage is that because you're using a WordPress site, your your comments feed has an RSS feed as well. So if people want to follow yeah. the community and the discussion, they can s- subscribe to that separately. So I use the Thunderbird sort of built within my email clients just to um, integrate RSS feeds into it. So that's always helpful just to see what, what people are chatting about in, in the industry and different comment threads on, on blogs and things.
0: Well, one thing I found related to this uh, is um, trying to meet people where they want to find information, which mm-hmm. I, I think in, it's helpful when you have a bunch of different platforms. But I've, specifically, I found a couple of years ago, we started doing design diaries whenever we released a new product. So like I would say, okay, here's the new product, here's the announcement. And then for the next 10 days, every day, I'm going to focus on a specific element of that. And at first, I only published them on our website. But then people asked, okay, can you put this on uh, on the Facebook group too? And so I, I would put it on the, on the Facebook group. And then people asked, oh, can you put this on Board Game Geek too? Because I found that everyone has their different their different format that they like to consume content, that the place that they go for that content, which is a little arduous for a publisher because I have to post the same thing in multiple different places. But it yeah. was a good reminder to me that as easy as it is to, you know, anyone can get on Facebook, anyone can go to our blog, anyone can go to BoardGameGeek, but people wanted it at the place that they felt the most comfortable. So I've tried to do that ever since, and that will probably continue continue to expand.
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's almost the same when it comes to accepting payments. You know, some people want to yeah you know, pay with PayPal, some people want to pay with their credit card or whatever. So it's almost like you kind of have to take this I have to adopt all the approaches type of approach right. to to get people to interact. I know yeah. that uh, Twitter was one that you recently sort of disconnected from. Yeah, do you maybe talk a little bit about your thought process behind that because I yeah I think it's valuable to be on different sites, but you might have too much on your plate, or some you might just not feel are very conducive. And I can somewhat relate to your um, struggles with with Twitter and, and the platform. Um, I don't think all social media platforms are equal in what they're trying to do. So yeah. yeah, Yeah, just talk a little bit about your experience with that and why you decided to step down from Twitter.
0: Uh, yeah, this was a few months ago. I, I had a, an interaction on Twitter that reminded, that made me realize that a lot of the the vast majority of the times on social media where I have spoken reactively and too quickly and in a way that I don't think is really true to myself like either aggressively or passive aggressively, things that I look back at with uh, at even a few minutes later I'm like, oh wow that that was not okay for me to say like that is not me, that's not who I am And I, re- I I've done this on all platforms. I respond to a lot of comments, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've said a lot of things that I, I I wish I could take back. but I realized that the vast majority of them were on Twitter. And I think it's because Twitter is, it's so quick and easy. Like you see this thing pop up and I almost panic when I see something pop up that, that might reflect poorly on Stillmeyer games or often inaccurately on Stillmeyer games or on, on, on me, usually on Stonemaier games. And my, my reaction is, oh, this is going to be, this is going to blow up. This tweet right here is going to blow up. And so I need to respond to it right away. Instead of taking a step back and thinking about it and thinking about what mm-hmm. the correct way that is true to me and true to my company to respond. And so I realized that I just did that way too often on Twitter and it wasn't healthy for me. I don't think it was healthy for the people who were engaging with me on Twitter and it wasn't healthy for Stonemaier games. And so I stepped, I stepped away. I I kind of turned off my, my, my personal Twitter account and left the company account to our director of communications. And. I haven't regretted it for a second. Like it's been yeah. a load off my chest to, to do that. <laughs> yeah.
2: I always found that with Twitter, things make a lot more sense on the platform when you read everyone's tweet as if they're screaming. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. The the problems of I suppose dehumanizing people through text and then also having, yeah. you know, short character limits and then it becomes all about, you know, pithy statements that kind of jab into people, that gets reactions. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's a disadvantage of a platform like that, but I'm sure there's many people who can leverage it in their marketing efforts. And, and right. the, the trending tab is, is quite useful just to jump on trends that are related to the industry.
1: I I love the holistic strategy that you take uh, because all of the all of the assets that you have, you kind of use all of them together in a single with a single marketing message on mm-hmm. on each one. And um, I think that some people, especially new folks, that you know, have a, a baby email list and they don't want to send an email out because they feel like it's going to, people are going to, you know, unsubscribe or something like that. I think yeah. that, I guess the way that I look at it is you're, let's just say you're a week out from Kickstarter, you got to send that email. And if you right. don't, it, you know, it's just, it, you're only hurting yourself, but if the people are there, you know, that, that unsubscribe, first of all, it's a necessary part of every email or you're going to have people that unsubscribe, but now is the time when it matters, for you to, to send that email and those that unsubscribe are probably not going to be the ones that support your product and you need to send the email for those that want to support
0: you or that are ready right? Uh, right because
1: now's when it matters
0: when i think the like the intent for me and it sounds like for you too the intent is never really to, to sell but there are times where people want to buy something. They've signed up to that e-newsletter because they want you to tell them when it's time to buy that thing or when it's time to pre-order it or back it. And I think I, I'm, I'm any creator is doing uh, their audience a disservice if they don't tell them when that opportunity happens, because then they might miss it. They might miss that that window, if there is a window or, or the best price. So we kind of learned that with the nesting box, even though we the wing, we made this big nesting box for Wingspan and we told everyone about it, but we Maybe should have told them more than we did. I maybe a few reminders because a lot of people forgot about the first message and didn't they didn't put anything on their calendar. So I, I don't want anyone to ever miss out on something that they wanted to buy just because I didn't want to send too many communications about it.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that a lot of people look at selling something as a really kind of a dirty word. Uh, they yeah. look at it like, um, you know, no offense to any used car salesman out here, but the adage is the used car salesman trying to sell yeah. you a lemon. Off the lot, you put sand in the in the gas tank so you don't hear the sounds or whatever, you know, and, and all of that. It's like selling something, trying to convince somebody to buy something they don't want, you know, trying to convince somebody to buy something that they weren't looking to buy versus helping somebody. You know, when somebody goes to a car lot and they ask for, you know, I'd really like a Mustang in red because I've always wanted a car like that. The used car salesman can say, I have a car just like that. It's over here and you show them and it's, you know, you tell them about the car and that kind of thing and help them understand about the product that they already indicated interest in. You're not selling something to somebody. You're more just helping them get what they wanted, right? And it just changes, you know, you can be an honest used car salesman Uh and you can be an honest
0: board game salesman. (laughs) (laughs) And I think part of the difference that I try to think about is I try to avoid applying adjectives or superlatives to our own products like i try not to say that this is the best exploration mm-hmm. game i try to describe what exploration is like in this game like how mm-hmm. what the mechanisms are examples of what it looks like and i let the customer decide if it is if it is awesome that's up to i leave that to them that's their decision to make and i think that can be a, a big difference between can make a big difference in how the customer feels about the way you're talking to them
1: definitely And i think that um you know there's this um shortcut that customers make inside their own head which is i don't believe what you're saying is true so when you call your (laughs) game revolutionary they are like no it's not there are so many games out there that one of them did it this way already you know And so yeah yeah, i i totally concur with that where you can't give people things to argue with and adjectives are such a great (laughs) way to inspire an argumentative response man jamie it's been really awesome i'd love to keep you here another three hours but instead Uh, What we can do is maybe invite you back for a future episode and, you know, sometime. But it's been a wonderful time. Thank you so much for your time and uh, really appreciate you. And uh, just so that everybody knows, where uh, so Expeditions is the sequel to Scythe. Would you mind just uh, talking about that very briefly and then sharing where people can go get it if they're interested?
0: Yeah. So Expeditions is, like you said, a sequel to Scythe. It's a standalone game that takes place a few years after the final events of Scythe where a meteor has crashed in northern Siberia, and a few people decide to go on an expedition there to see some of the weird stuff that's happened. It's, a, it's an exploration game. It has completely new mechanisms inside, but I try to capture the feeling of engine building and progression um, and upgrading that I had inside in a, in a more card-driven and tile-driven game in, in Expeditions. It is available for pre-order right now. We've, start, we've just kind of started production. We haven't quite locked in quantities. And so people can pre-order it now, or if they discover this podcast months down the road, it's probably still going to be available for for pre-order because we're going to make a lot of copies. And so they can go over to our web store and check it out.
1: Awesome. All right. Thanks, Jamie. Um, And uh, we have a third host on the podcast. Normally his name is Richard, but it is before his wakey wakey time right now. And because he's on the West coast and uh, we'll just have robot Richard send us out.
0: And now it's time for nerd
1: news. So because we interviewed Jamie Stegmeier and the uh, circumstances of the interview, we we decided to throw the news section in at the end of the podcast instead of the beginning. People might actually prefer. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) If you prefer that, let us know. There are a couple of bits of news that we really wanted to share. The first one is just kind of a follow-up on the Dungeons & Dragons OGL, uh, the open gaming license that Dungeons & Dragons had, the brief history for those that aren't super familiar, D&D Put out a an open gaming license, which allowed anyone to create content and monetize content off of the Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition uh, universe. Um, they they could make, I think it's actually more than Fifth Edition, but they could make D and D products free, freely, and they you know, and this was used for movies and all sorts of other things that uh, you know were uh, just all sorts of stuff. And then Wizards of the Coast tried to introduce a new open gaming license that gave them royalties, greater control. And uh they, they try to revoke the old license. Uh I believe this was leaked originally, and it was a big mistake. The community reaction was so negative that wizards actually, this is the news, ended up completely abandoning the idea. You have a beloved property like Dungeons and Dragons, and that has a huge fan base, and you make a a change that has such an you know a, a big impact on that fan base, their power to react is is, I mean, we have seen tribes, I mean, I think that marketing is all about tribal marketing. Now you, you, you get a bunch of people into your tribe and they're your people, your tribe that uh, kind of interacts around your stuff. And uh, as we talked with Jamie, uh, he clearly has a tribe that interacts with his uh, things. Um, I'm one of them. And, you know, D&D has, um you know, an even bigger tribe. Uh, because they've been around so long, and they basically, you know, really paved the way for tabletop RPGs, and so their way to to fight back is to fight back with their wallet. You know, that's when when you know Wizards said what they said, you had thousands and thousands of people canceled their D and D Beyond subscriptions in protest. You had a lot of people stand up, a lot of companies stand up and say i can't believe this is happening you know we actually talked with modifius it actually ends up that it was a happy little accident that modifius um uh was you know Re- that they introduced their their, right and then you had uh, other companies like paizo which uh is a is another big you know rpg or tabletop rpg uh company and uh, you know that that announced their open gaming uh dnd you know system and
2: yeah, so it's the open RPG Creative License orc that uh, Peso produced.
1: Yeah, so you've got you've got a lot of you know other games that really elevated in popularity. People stopped buying d products for a time and then jumped into things like Call of Cthulhu and Pathfinder and whatnot. This had such I'm sure such an effect on Wizards of the Coast bottom line in addition to the negative press that's why it was just removed it was a fight they they knew they couldn't win and there would be no winners right if they if they kept moving forward but i think that as this pc gamer article will include in the show notes but uh, this pc gamer article says they done screwed up there um, <laughs> so i guess some brief reflections on this um people like their d and d and i mean it, I just see it as a good thing for indie creators that something like this happened. You're going to have more opportunity. Number one, if you're, if you create D and D fifth edition supplements or other things like that, you're safe now, uh, before you weren't safe. And if you're an an indie creator that doesn't work in the fifth edition world or the, you know, D and D property world, you're, um, in a better position than you were before. People are more open-minded than ever to trying new, new systems, and a very unfortunate mistake that helps in you know the the industry overall because you're not going to have people quitting tabletop rpgs because of what the company did but people are going to turn to alternatives and um i'm not sure what the damage what you know truthfully the the, the damage that is done i don't know that that's a permanent thing i think the DD um movie honestly this press it's press for dungeons and dragons that is going to serve it well, when when it comes time for the movie. Everybody's very excited for the movie with Chris Pine that's coming out. And this whole thing that pushed D&D into the mainstream, you know, in, in the mainstream news cycle for a time, that will help with the marketing of the movie. And in the end, I truthfully think that all ships are going to rise higher based on the tide of awareness that this caused. And, you know, combined with the movie, you know, DD is not going anywhere. So, I've been
2: working on a spreadsheet tool or spreadsheets that I've I finally finished. I will be adding to it over time. And the idea is that this is a spreadsheet we're going to release to members of our Crowdfunding Nerds course. So, it's just another add on that people will get for um, jumping in on the course. And what I've sought to do is go through some, some of the top, we call it the additional advertising channels. So if you want to do some advertising for your game, but you want to go find something outside of maybe the more traditional advertising methods of Facebook or YouTube or Google, something like that. So a lot of it's focused on niche websites, on industry influencers, but I've compiled everything in one spreadsheet. So all of their services, all of their prices are there with checkboxes. So all you have to do is hit the checkbox, and then automatically tallies how much those services cost. And it also calculates what your potential reach and the cost to reach those people are, so I call it the, the daily CPM or the daily cost per 1,000 impressions. So that's also very helpful because you're, you you're able to compare. So let's say you the spreadsheet asks for your budget. So you put in your budget, let's say it's you know, $2,500. And you can then click around to see where's the best way to put this budget to you know maximize your reach if that's what you want to go for. Or maybe you want to put a little bit more in this influencer because you know, you know they have good content, so you are going to suit your your product. And then, what you, you might want to okay, I have this much left, and where can I where can I put that? So it's it's great to have it all in one one place. And we also include in it um our service fee if people want us to liaise and sort of project manage those things, they they can um, certainly do that. But it sort of separates the the fees and then um between what what the influencer charges and then what we charge. So people are able to use it. Whether they want to contact those people
1: themselves or if they want us to go
2: and do that for them. So,
1: um, and this originally came um, came up as a need because we have clients that came out and and you know every every once in a while have a client that says I have unlimited money. I need you know all the things. All the and they're things. Like, Well, <laughs> yeah, they're all separated and spread out everywhere. You know, or you know, I mean, obviously that's that's certainly an edge case. But um, you know, we'll have clients saying I have a budget of. A total budget of like ten thousand dollars. What should I do with it? And mm-hmm. you know, my my answer, you know, up to let's say five or six thousand dollars, that money should be effectively spent on Facebook ads and maybe one, you know, major influencer, and of course the cost of your prototypes to send out to multiple YouTube reviewers, one of which you pay uh, for a preview. But then you know what when it goes from five or six thousand uh, up to eight, nine, 10,000, what do you do? I mean, you can advertise on board game geek and do email blasts with, you know, the board game revolution community. You can do all sorts of other things. You can advertise with the dice tower. You can advertise with dice breaker. You can advertise with all sorts of different companies and places. And so this spreadsheet, correct me if I'm wrong, has all of those things as options that are laid out in front of you. So as a creator you know, wondering where you should put your money, it it's those are your choices. And don't didn't you put in like cost per impression and and that sort of thing to kind of help you compare apples to apples?
2: Yes. So well, so right now there's I think there's four services. We have Kick Track, we have the board game Nexus slash AtLad Games, we have Board game revolution community, dice tower and board game geek. So those are all the ones that are currently there. I will be adding more to it. So I, I just, but I think it's at a point now where we can upload it and people can actually start using it. And um, yes, so not only does it sort of work out the daily cost per impression so that you can compare with the services, it also shows all their services and all the conditions. So it's a pretty complex spreadsheet because some of them are like, you can only get this if you if you first purchase this. So the spreadsheet kind of takes all of that into consideration. So, um, you know, for, for instance, in board game geek, you have to have so many impressions before you can
1: get like their add-ons. Their add-ons, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's
2: sort of fact. You can't tick the add-on until you've checked the the impressions. Yep. So um, that's all being calculated in there. So it was, it was pretty complex, but I think it's going to be a huge time saver just for us internally. if song comes to us, and instead of me having to do that every single time, um, I've yep. also contacted all these groups saying. Keep me in the loop if you ever update your pricing. Let me know because I'm going to just keep on updating the spreadsheet. So hopefully it'll be a resource that's going to be useful to our the the people in the course. It's another sort of thing that they, another perk they have for being in the course. And also it's going to make my life easier. <laughs> easier yeah. So.
1: And uh, because of this, I think it's only right to extend. We we've had people purchase the course at full price. Like we're our our you know it's it's February. We have stopped. Um, all of our super crazy discounts, and it's a six hundred dollar course. But for people listening on this podcast, we're we are still going to give that discount to you guys for a little bit longer. It it changes. It takes the six hundred dollar course and makes it a two hundred and nine dollar course, like two hundred nine dollars and sixty five cents, or something like that.
2: So, if you're interested in receiving this spreadsheet, we're gonna extend the discount code for. Um, the course uh, with that with that code spreadsheet. And if you use that, we'll include it in the, the show notes for the next two weeks. We will open that up if you want to get the course at a, what, a 65% discount. And that will bring the course down to $209.
1: So another element of news is, you know, IGN and other large sites like this, actually, you know, PC Gamer, they cover board games. And if you can get your game, you know, a review of your board game on, These sites, you're going to make, you're going to get a lot of clicks. You're going to drive a lot of interest and that sort of thing. However, it's really difficult to get your game on a site like this. We could probably dedicate, you know, our an, an entire podcast episode to how one might do this. You know, just first of all, letting people know that it's possible to get your game on sites like this is we thought was newsworthy. This kind of came to our attention because. Of one of our clients uh you know modifius and skyrim they skyrim the board game was recently reviewed on ign.com and you know in their tabletop games category and um you know i so i i actually reached out to the uh the guy that did the review his name is charlie, charlie Field. Seal. i pitched him the idea of deliverance and um when i pitched him deliverance i suggested that he would like the game and i really actually thought this because he had Zombicide on his top games list. He had Star Wars Rebellion on his top games list, and he recently reviewed Skyrim. All that kind of share some similarities. And I wrote him a very personalized message, and he uh, he concurred. He said, "Yeah, this this sounds very interesting. It does sound um something uh, like something that I would uh, that I would enjoy." So what he responded to me was that. He wouldn't likely be able to review it at IGN or Polygon, which he also writes for. He said this, It's incredibly difficult to get my editors at large sites such as those to publish reviews of indie board games. Incredibly difficult. Not impossible, but incredibly difficult. I can't say I know from, from Charlie's perspective what factors make it into reviews, but I can surmise. One of them would certainly be how they can monetize that content Mm -hmm. um one of the major considerations is of course an affiliate link on amazon Amazon. another one is traffic so another way to monetize a site like this is to have a lot of traffic and so they're going to do things like you know the best 10 or the top 10 whatever games the best two-player games the best horror board games for 2023 that type of content Gets a lot of traffic. The best board games for couples. You see a lot of that. And then every so often, you get an indie board game review. Heat, Pedal to the Metal. Um, you've got Flamecraft, Undaunted Stalingrad. You've got smaller games, which are kind of kind of rare. Uh, Crescent Moon, uh, board game review. Um, Sean, you shared with me. Uh, Brian Boru, High King of Ireland, board game review. These are not small titles. None of them are just unheard of. But I'll say I believe all of them are able to purchase, and um, they're they're not like upcoming kickstarters unless they're big intellectual properties. So if it's newsworthy and it has a big video game IP attached to it, you'll get on sites like IGN and Polygon. But you know if you want to earn a review here, it's very difficult. You've got to establish a relationship with somebody that writes reviews like that, and you have to be released so that's that's my those are my thoughts any 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 other thoughts on something like that Sean? Well, something
2: to keep in mind just in case you do get to a stage where you're a big shot and your game is selling well on amazon and you know you could pitch ign and say hey i've got this game selling well on amazon mm-hmm. you want to write a review for me you know and go from there so as long as you know that this is something they do because i to be honest before they wrote this review for uh modifius with or this review for skyrim i didn't realize ign did tabletop content i just Figured that they focused on uh, video game stuff, so it came as a surprise to me. So I'm sure there's many people who are in that same category. So something to keep an eye on, and who knows, they might expand their service if this is something that they could again monetize. If there's enough interest in people reaching out saying, "Hey, do a review for me."
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> now, um, one thing that that I'll I'll say on a SEO marketing side, this is Richard's area of expertise, but it's also mine. They Do there are a couple of techniques that are a really big deal if you have a game that's already that already exists that you want to sell? You want to find awesome articles like this, like, uh, you know, top games for two players, top games for couples, top horror board games, whatever it is, those types of articles. You want your like that? That article is filled with affiliate links that of of games that you can purchase on Amazon, it gets a ton of traffic, but that one link is worth a lot in terms of ranking. So all of those games on Amazon are going to rank higher because they're getting lots more traffic, they're making lots more sales and that sort of thing. You can get your game on a list like that too if you're if you make a compelling case and it's uh, it's difficult but it's possible. Another another option is to use what is what I call or what I think others call the skyscraper link building technique. You Find a really awesome piece of content like that at IGN, you know, top top board games for couples, and you make a better piece of content. You find a great high high ranking content piece like that, kind of look at it, see what it, you know its weaknesses, and you develop a much better piece. So there you, you go. steal the thunder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so anyway, um, IGN and Polygon and and big sites like that, PC Gamer, et cetera. They do review board games, tabletop games. So if you've got an awesome IP, you, yeah, I mean it's that's your that's your entrance in. So
2: yeah, they're clearly I'm um, writing for their titles for search engines because it's like best Dungeons and Dragons ideas for 2023. It's not exactly compelling, it doesn't make want to click it, but it's something you'd see in a search result. Yep. So their article titles are obviously geared for SEO.
1: Yeah. So all right, well I guess that kind of sums up our news. So I know I would say I said that. I would send Robot Richard out after Jamie the first time.
0: We can do it now.
1: Yeah, let's send Robot
0: Richard. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.